The Crystal Shard Chapter 8 Bloody Fields The Horde entered the mouth of Bremintron just before midday. They longed to announce their glorious charge with a song of war, but they understood that a certain degree of stealth was vital to the ultimate success of de Berenson's battle plan. De Berenson was comforted by the familiar sight of sails dotting the waters of Mare Dalden as he jogged beside King Halfdane. The surprise would be complete, he believed, and then, with ironic amusement, he noted that some of the ships already flew the red flags of the catch. More wealth for the visitors, he hissed under his breath. The barbarians still had not begun their song when the tribe of the bear split away from the main group and headed toward Tourmaline, though the cloud of dust that followed their run would have told a wary observer that something out of the ordinary was happening. They rolled on toward Bryn Shander and cried out their first cheer when the pennant of the principal city came into sight. The combined forces of the four towns of Mare Dalden lay hidden in Tourmaline. Their goal was to strike fast and hard at the small tribe that attacked the city, overrunning them as quickly as possible, then charged to the aid of Bryn Shander, trapping the rest of the horde between the two armies. Kemp of Targos was in command of this operation, but he had conceded the first blow to Argawal, spokesman of the home city. Torges set the first buildings of the city ablaze as Halfdane's wild army rushed in. Tourmaline was second only to Targos among the nine fishing villages in population, but it was a sprawling, uncluttered town, with houses spread out over a large area and wide avenues running between them. Its people had retained their privacy and a measure of breathing room, giving the town an air of solitude that belied its numbers. Still, De Berenson sensed that the streets seemed unusually deserted. He mentioned his concern to the barbarian king at his side, though Halfdane assured him that the rats had gone into hiding at the approach of the bear. "'Pull them out of their holes and burn their houses!' the barbarian king roared. "'Let the fishermen on the lake hear the cries of their women and see the smoke of their burning town!' But then an arrow thudded into Halfdane's chest burying itself within his flesh and biting through, tearing into his heart. The shocked barbarian looked down in horror at the vibrating shaft, though he couldn't even utter a final cry before the blackness of death closed in around him. With his ashwood bow, Argawal of Tourmaline had silenced the king of the tribe of the bear, and, on signal from Argawal's strike, the four armies of Merdalden sprang to life. They leaped from the rooftops of every building, from the alleys and doorways of every street, against the ferocious assault of the multitude, the confused and stunned barbarians realized immediately that their battle would soon be at an end. Many were cut down before they could even ready their weapons. Some of the battle-hardened invaders managed to form into small groups, but the people of ten towns, fighting for their homes and the lives of their loved ones, and, armed with crafted weapons and shields, forged by dwarven smiths, pressed in immediately. Fearlessly, the defenders bore the remaining invaders down under the weight of their greater numbers. In an alley on the edge of Tourmaline, Regis dove behind the concealment of a small cart as two fleeing barbarians passed by. The halfling fought with a personal dilemma. He didn't want to be labeled a coward, but he had no intention of jumping into the battle of the big folk. When the danger had passed, he walked back around the cart and tried to figure out his next move. Suddenly, a dark-haired man, a member of Ten Town's militia, Regis supposed, entered the alley and spotted the halfling. 
Regis knew that his little game of hiding was over. The time had come for him to make his stand. Two of the scum just passed this way, he called boldly to the dark-haired southerner. Come, if we're quick, we can catch them yet. The Baronson had different plans, though. In a desperate attempt to save his own life, he had decided to slip down one alley and emerge from another as a member of the Ten Towns Force. He had no intention of leaving any witnesses to his treachery. Steadily, he walked toward Regis, his slender sword at the ready. Regis sensed that the mannerisms of the closing man weren't quite right. "'Who are you?' he asked, though he somehow expected no reply. He thought that he knew nearly everyone in the city, though he didn't believe that he had ever seen this man before. Already, he had the uncomfortable suspicion that this was the traitor Drizzt had described to Brunner. "'How come I didn't see you come in with the others early?' De Berenson thrust his sword at the halfling's eye. Regis, dexterous and ever alert, managed to lurch out of the way, though the blade scratched the side of his head and the momentum of his dodge sent him spinning to the ground. With an unemotional, disturbingly cold-blooded calm, the dark-haired man closed in again. Regis scrambled to his feet and backed away, step for step with his assailant. But then he bumped up against the side of a small cart. The Berenson advanced methodically. The halfling had nowhere left to run. Desperate, Regis pulled the ruby pendant from under his waistcoat. "'Please don't kill me,' he pleaded, holding the sparkling stone out by its chain and letting it dance seductively. "'If you let me live, I'll give you this and show you where you can find many more.' Regis was encouraged by de Berenson's slight hesitation at the sight of the stone. "'Surely it's a beautiful cut and worth a dragon's hoard of gold.' De Berenson kept his sword out in front of him, but Regis counted as the seconds passed and the dark-haired man did not blink. The halfling's left hand began to steady, while his right, concealed behind the back, clasped firmly onto the handle of a small but heavy mace crafted for him personally by Brunner. Come, look closer, Regis suggested softly. De Berenson, firmly under the spell of the sparkling stone, stooped low to better examine its fascinating dance of light. "'This really isn't fair,' Regis lamented aloud, confident that de Berenson was oblivious to anything he might say at this moment. He cracked the spiked ball of the mace onto the back of the bending man's head. Regis eyed the result of his dirty work and shrugged absently. He had only done what was necessary. The sounds of the battle in the street rang closer to his alley sanctuary and dispelled his contemplation. Again, the halfling acted on instinct. He crawled under the body of his felled enemy, then twisted around underneath to make it look as if he'd gone down under the weight of the larger man. When he inspected the damage of de Berenson's initial thrust, he was glad that he hadn't lost an ear. He hoped that his wound was serious enough to give credence to this image of a death struggle. The main host of the barbarian force reached the low, long hill that led up to Bryn Shander, unaware of what had befallen their comrades in Tourmaline. Here they split again, with Hafstag leading the tribe of the Elk around the eastern side of the hill and Bayorg taking the rest of the horde straight toward the walled city. Now they took up their song of battle, hoping to further unnerve the shocked and terrified people of Ten Towns. But behind the wall of Bryn Shander was a very different scene than the barbarians imagined. 
The army of the city, along with the forces of Kerkonig and Kerdinival, sat ready with bows and spears and buckets of hot oil. In a dark twist of irony, the tribe of the elk, out of the sight of the front wall of the city, took up a cheer when the first screams of death rang out on the hill, thinking the victims to be unprepared people of ten towns. A few seconds later, as Hefstag led the men around the easternmost bend of the hill, they too met with disaster. The armies of Goodmead and Dugenshol were firmly dug in and waiting, and the barbarians were hard-pressed before they even knew what had hit them. After the first few moments of confusion, though, Hefstag managed to regain control of the situation. These warriors had been through many battles together, seasoned fighting men who knew no fear. Even with the losses of the initial attack, they were not outnumbered by the forces before them, and Hefsteg was confident that he had overrun the fishermen quickly and still had his men in position. But then, shouting as they came, the army of East Haven charged down the east way and pressed the barbarians on their left flank, and Hefsteg, still unshaken, had just ordered his men to make the proper adjustments to protect against the new foe, when ninety battle-hardened and heavily-armored dwarves tore into them from behind. The grim-faced dwarven host attacked on a wedge formation, with Bruner at its deadly tip. They cut into the tribe of the elk, felling barbarians like a low, swinging scythe through the tall grass. The barbarians fought bravely, and many fishermen died on the eastern slopes of Bryn Shander. But the tribe of the elk was outnumbered and outflanked, and barbarian blood ran freer than the blood of their foes. Hefstag worked wildly to rally his men, but all semblance of formation and order disintegrated around him. To his worst horror and disgrace, the giant king realized that every one of his warriors would die on this field if they didn't find a way to escape the ring of enemies and flee back to the safety of the tundra. Hefstag himself, who had never before retreated in battle, led the desperate break. He, and as many warriors as he could gather together, rushed around the dwarven host, seeking a route between them and the army of Easthaven. Most of the tribesmen were cut down by the blades of Bruner's people, but some managed to break free of the ring and bolt away towards Kelvin's Karn. Hefsteg got through the gauntlet, killing two dwarves as he passed, but suddenly the giant king was engulfed in an impenetrable globe of absolute blackness. He dove headlong through it and emerged back into the light only to find himself face to face with a dark elf. Bruner had seven notches to put on his axe handle, and he bore down on number eight, a tall, gangly barbarian youth, too young to even show any stubble on his tanned face, but bearing the standard of the tribe of the elk with the composure of an experienced warrior. Bruner curiously considered the engaging stare and calm visage as he closed in on the youth, it surprised him that he did not find the savage fire of barbarian bloodlust contorting the youth's features, but rather an observant, understanding depth. The dwarf found himself truly lamenting having to kill one so young and unusual, and his pity caused him to hesitate slightly as the two joined battle. Ferocious as his heritage dictated, though, the youth showed no fear, and Bruner's hesitation had given him the first swing— with deadly accuracy, he slammed his standard pole down onto the foe, snapping it in half. The amazingly powerful blow dented Bruner's helm and jolted the dwarf into a short bounce. Tough as the mountain stone he mined, Bruner put his hands on his hips and glared up at the barbarian, who nearly dropped the pole so shocked was he that the dwarf still stood. "'Silly boy!' 
Bruner growled as he cut the youth's legs out from under him. Ain't you never been told not to hit a dwarf on the head? The youth desperately tried to regain his footing, but Bruner slammed an iron shield right into his face. Eight? roared the dwarf as he stormed away in search of number nine. But he looked back for a moment over his shoulder to consider the fallen youth, shaking his head at the waist of one so tall and straight with intelligent eyes to match his physical prowess, a combination uncommon among the wild and ferocious natives of Icewind Dale. Hefstag's rage doubled when he recognized the newest opponent as a drow elf. Sorceress dog! he bellowed, raising his huge axe high into the sky. Even as he spoke, Drizzt flickered a finger and purple flames lined the tall barbarian from head to toe. Hefstag roared in horror at the magical flame, though the flames did not burn his skin. Drizzt bore in, his two scimitars whirling and jabbing, thrusting high and low too quickly for the barbarian king to deflect both. Blood trickled from many small wounds, but Hefstag seemed able to shake off the punctures of the slender scimitars as no more than a discomfort. The great axe arced down, and though Drizzt was able to deflect its path, the effort numbed his arm. Again, the barbarian swung his axe. This time, Drizzt was able to spin out of the killing sweep, and the completion of the drow's rotation left the overbalanced Hefstag stumbling and open to a counter. Drizzt did not hesitate, driving one of his blades deep into the barbarian king's side. Hefstag howled in agony and launched a backhanded swing in retaliation. Drizzt thought his last thrust to be fatal, and he was surprised was total when the flathead of Hefstag's axe smashed into his ribs and launched him through the air. The barbarian charged quickly after, meaning to finish this dangerous opponent before he could regain his footing. But Drizzt was as nimble as a cat. He landed in a roll and came up to meet Hefstag's charge with one of his own scimitars firmly set. His axe helplessly poised above his head, the surprised barbarian couldn't stop his momentum before he impaled his belly on the wicked point. Still, he glared at the drow and began to swing his axe. Already convinced of the superhuman strength of the barbarian, Drizzt had kept up his guard this time. He knifed his second blade under the first, opening the lower part of Hefstag's abdomen from hip to hip. Hefstag's axe fell harmlessly to the ground as he grabbed at the wound, desperately trying to keep his belly from spilling out. His huge head lulled from side to side. The world spun about him as he felt himself endlessly falling. Several other tribesmen, in full flight with the dwarves hot on their heels, came by at the moment and caught their king before he hit the ground. So great was her dedication to Hefstag that two of them lifted him and carried him away, while the others turned to face the coming tide of dwarves, knowing that they would certainly be cut down, but hoping only to give their comrades enough time to bear their king to safety. Drizzt rolled away from the barbarians and leaped to his feet, meaning to give chase to the two who bore Hefstag. He had a sickening feeling that the terrible king would survive even the latest grievous wound, and he was determined to finish the job. But when he rose, he too found the world spinning. The side of his cloak was stained with his own blood, and he suddenly found it difficult to catch his breath. The blazing midday sun burned into his night eyes, and he was lathered in sweat. Driz collapsed into darkness. The three armies waiting behind Bryn Shander's wall had quickly dispatched the first line of invaders, and then driven the remaining barbarian host halfway back down the hill. Undaunted and thinking that time would play in their favor, the ferocious horde had regrouped around Bayorg and begun a steady, cautious march back toward the city. 
When the barbarians heard the charge coming up the eastern slope, they assumed that Hefstag had finished the battle on the side of the hill, had learned of the resistance of the front gate, and was returning to help them smash into the city. Then, Bayorg spotted tribesmen fleeing to the north toward Icewind Pass, the stretch of ground opposite Bremen's Run that passed between Lac Dinashir and the western side of Calvin's Carn. The king of the tribe of the wolf knew that his people were in trouble, offering no explanation beyond the promised thrust of the tip of his spear to any who questioned his orders. Bayorg started to turn his men around to head away from the city, hoping to regroup with Helfdane and the tribe of the bear and salvage as many of his people as he could. Before he even had complete reversal of the march, he found Kemp and the four armies of Meridolden behind him, their deep ranks barely thinned by the slaughter in Tourmaline. Over the wall came the armies of Bryn Shander, Caer Konig, and Caer Dineval, and around the hill came Bruner leading the Dwarven clan and the last three armies of Ten Towns. Bayorg ordered his men into a tight circle. Tempos is watching, he yelled at them. Make him proud of his people. Nearly 800 barbarians remained, and they fought with the confidence of the blessings of their god. They held their formation for almost an hour, singing and dying before the lines broke down and chaos erupted. Less than 50 escaped with their lives. After the final blows had at last been swung, the exhausted warriors of Ten Towns set about the grim task of sorting out their losses. More than 500 of their companions had been killed, and 200 more would eventually die of their wounds. Yet, the toll wasn't even heavy considering the 2,000 barbarians who lay dead in the streets of Tourmaline and on the slopes of Bryn Shander. Many heroes had been made that day, and Bruner, though anxious to get back to the eastern battlefields to search for missing companions, paused for a long moment as the last of them was carried in glory up the hill to Bryn Shander. Rumblebelly? exclaimed the dwarf. The name is Regis, the halfling retorted from his high perch, proudly folding his arms across his chest. Respect, good dwarf, said one of the men carrying Regis. In single combat, spokesman Regis of Lonelywood slew the traitor that brought the horde upon us, though he was wickedly injured in the battle. Bruner snorted in amusement as the procession passed. There's more to that tale than what's been told, I'll wager. He chuckled to his equally amused companions. Or I'm a bearded gnome. Kemp of Targros and one of his lieutenants were the first to come upon the fallen form of Drizduarden. Kemp prodded the dark elf with the toe of his blood-stained boot, drawing a semi-conscious groan in response. He lives. Kemp said to his lieutenant with an amused smile. A pity. He kicked the injured drow again, this time with more enthusiasm. The other men laughed at approval and lifted his own foot to join in the fun. Suddenly, a mailed fist slammed into Kemp's kidney with enough force to carry the spokesman over Drizzt and send him bouncing down the long decline of the hill. His lieutenant whirled around, conveniently ducking low to receive Bruner's second swing square in the face. One for yourself, too! The enraged dwarf growled, and he felt the man's nose shatter under his blow. Cassius of Bryn Shander, viewing the incident from higher up on the hill, screamed in anger and rushed down the slope toward Bruner. "'You should be taught some diplomacy,' he scolded. "'Stand where you are, you son of a swamp pig!' was Bruner's threatening response. 
You owe the drow your stinking wives and homes, he roared for all of them to hear. And yet you treat him as vermin. Where your words, dwarf, retorted Cassius, tentatively grabbing at his sword hilt. The dwarves formed a line around their leader, and Cassius's men gathered around him. Then a third voice sounded clearly. Where your own, Cassius, warned Argawal of Tourmaline. I would have done the same thing to Kemp if I was possessed of the courage of the dwarf. He pointed to the north. The sky is clear, he yelled. Yet were it not for the drow, it would be filled with the smoke of burning Tourmaline. The spokesman from Tourmaline and his companions moved over to join Bruner's line. Two of the men gently lifted Driz from the ground. Fear not for your friend, valiant dwarf, said Argobal. He will be well tended in my city. Never again shall I, or my fellow men of Tourmaline, prejudge him by the color of his skin and the reputation of his kin. Cassius was outraged. Remove your soldiers from the grounds of Bryn Shander, he screamed at Argawal, but it was an empty threat, for the men of Tourmaline were already departing. Satisfied that the drow was in safe hands, Bruner and his clan moved on to search the rest of the battlefield. I'll not forget this. Kemp yelled at him far down the hill. Bruner spat at the spokesman from Targos and continued on unshaken. And so it went that the alliance of the people of Ten Towns lasted only as long as their common enemy.